0: And welcome to another episode of the Novel Brain with Dr. E. Today I'm going to be talking about the myth of the 10,000 hour rule. We'll be talking about it in depth and get to the bottom of it, give you some ideas as to what you can actually make out of it. Stay tuned. (laughs) Alright, so I actually went to a conference back in 2008, and if my memory serves me correct, it was in Boston. This was for the American Psychological Association, and I did my research prior to going. I was really excited to see keynote speaker then uh, was Malcolm Gladwell. For those of you who know, he had several books out, and um, is a pretty famous journalist and writer, um, really great mind. He, he wrote, previous to this convention, he wrote a book called Outliers. And in Outliers, which discussed a lot of different topics, um, this one particularly, um, I think the subtitle to Outliers was the story of success. Well, he did discuss this concept of the 10,000-hour rule. Um, and, and to some way, I remember it being translated to psychologists Um, Again, this was the American uh, Psychological Association, to which I've been a member, I think, over 15, 20 years now, some some time. And um, I've gotten a lot of great resources from APA. They've had such good conferences. Um, This particular talk he gave was the keynote speech. I remember being in the first row, pretty much dead center. I had been reading the book Outliers, and I did come across... Uh, the excerpt on the 10,000-hour rule. Well, the one thing that was mentioned was, you know, that it does take time. Um, The only problem was the soundbite that a lot of the psychologists walked away with, and then also, therefore, society sort of walks away with. um, The soundbite of 10,000 hours of practice can get you to master status or expertise in your field or your craft and I think the one thing that was left out of that was really what it really takes outside of just practice so it's really a term that was researched by a group and in that group was Erickson, Cramp, Tesh, and Romer. Tesh Romer is a hyphenated name The role of deliberate practice in the acquisition of expert performance was the name of the actual article. And from that research, there were some really good conclusions. The problem is the urban myth aspect of the 10,000 rule is that people didn't read into what it takes outside of just that practice. And that's what I'm going to go over right now. So there really is a difference between strumming a guitar for four hours a day, five days a week for about, I guess that would come to somewhere around 10 years, uh, give or take a couple weeks. That comes to 10,000 hours. The difference is it's not deliberate. And so this researchers that I just mentioned in the paper talked about focused, deliberate practice, and that it requires the people who do that type of practice to be motivated intrinsically It requires that they perform tests that stress the areas in which they require improvement. And that's the difference. It requires immediate feedback and contemplation of performance. So you can't really get to the improvement and then continue 10 years down the line to expert or master status unless you're continually receiving and gaining that immediate feedback you also need a contemplation of the performance. You need some time to sort of digest the things that you've been working on over and over and over and over again, almost just, I guess, infinitely. So the thing is, is that we aren't all born naturally wonderful and, and, and amazing at, at things. You know, we might, we might sort of fantasize that, oh, my child or maybe myself or maybe somebody I know was born with this innate ability that, that they just are experts at something without any practice at all. So that's just not the case. There are some people in psychology, they used to call them, and, and the term's not used anymore, but they used to call them idiot savants. Um, idiot is not the appropriate term. Savant syndrome is something that people still sort of archaically use um, but that's also not used, and there's some derogatory nature to that, but the real truth of the matter is, is say, you have some kind of innate ability, and you're really focusing on one thing. So a lot of people might even be thinking in the back of their mind, is that autism? Is it the spectrum? I think of autism as a prism. There are so many ways to look at a spectrum, so it's even more infinitely um, unfolding as we, as we research into autism today. But it doesn't always have to fall on the spectrum. It could just be somebody that has the focus on the one thing that they like to do. That thing could be a lot of things. That could be writing. It could be singing. It could be focusing on a piano or maybe a harp or guitar, something that is of just innate and specific interest to that individual. So they could be spending a lot of time in their early formative years um, working on, say, let's just take for example, a guitar. I mean, I was uh, sort of secondhandedly handed a guitar, just the the, the sort of stereotypical story from my older brother who left off to school. And um, I just kind of discovered it uh, one day and I might've been 12, so I wasn't that young. But, you know, I carried it around and I strummed it all the time. And until today, that is now 40 years later, I'm strumming away. But did I ever become an expert at it or a master? I don't really think so. So it's just not the time. And and it's more than just the effort or the time put in. It's the reflection. And it's mostly that improvement scale that requires feedback. So this is why, and this is why I deduce this, even as I raise my own two young boys and they start having interests in different things, whether it's instruments or sports, you know, I start thinking about, do they need a guide, a mentor? Um, And that's why people take lessons, because you get that feedback and then you get this sort of gauge as to how you're doing every week. And then, of course, you get the homework and you go home and you practice daily. And this is what makes great pianists, or this is what makes great violinists, great songwriters, is practice. You can ask anybody who's ever done anything that appears to be expert level. And we can't really awaken Beethoven and Mozart and such. um, But they would say practice, even though they had the innate ability that I was speaking to earlier. The very um, accomplished Composers will tell you that they started things very young even. Well, this doesn't just apply to the age because what we've noticed, and there is a lot of studies done on people who are late adopters, or later in life they start a skill. Maybe they even retire, and all of a sudden they're doing some kind of skill. I can tell you my own father, when he um, retired as a surgeon, he moved into um a violin making school. He went to the Chicago School of Violin Making. And then for three years, he learned how to make violins at the age of like 75. He's still doing it today. And that, to me, is remarkable. Um, If he's listening today, you know, maybe you've surpassed that 10,000 hour rule. But I do believe that my father had that innate interest, almost lifelong, in the violin. And then he also had some reflection as to what he wanted to do. He went to Italy to, to look at how the greats did it, um, what kind of woods they used. And then on top of that, he was able to go to school. So he got the reflection piece combined with the feedback and, and that really helped him to improve. So you do have to have a guide. And what that reminds me of is I remember, I think I was four years old when he gave me my first violin. And my brother Ephraim, who's two years older, also started violin lessons at the same time. So we're a four and six. And I honestly think if you're going to take on any kind of really intricate skill, and that was violin for us, I also think of this for language. My, My two young boys are a little older than that. And they are both in Spanish immersion school. So they're learning their craft. And by the time they leave to middle school, they'll probably have 10,000 hours of speaking since they're not allowed to speak English in class, which I think is frustrating for some. But again, they have that guide that's, that's guiding them through. It's kind of the norm. And then they can see how they are with different teachers. And that's really important. And I know with my violin experience, I can speak for myself in that it did, it provided a discipline that I don't think I would have done on my own. I know I would have done on my own as a four-year-old. And in fact, as a 40-year-old, I don't think I would have done that same kind of discipline because you do have to have a, a sort of a feedback channel. Which leads me to think, why did I even start this podcast? This podcast was started because of me wanting to continue what I thought was going to be a lifelong career, but turned out I really was good at professorship. And in that time that I did that, so I did that for 10 years um, before I went back into practice. And in that 10 years, I recall getting a lot of really good feedback. And this was even from my students, not necessarily from my supervisors. However, that did occur. But I think the best feedback I got, especially as a teacher, came from my students. And I got that feedback regularly, consistently. It was required. Um, and I also remember getting that later in, in my career after my students would graduate with psychology degrees and move into the fields and then, and, then, and then maybe contact me later via email or phone call and just talk to me about what they learned from the three or four years that they were under my tutelage at the graduate school. In Chicago, and so I remember thinking, why did I start the podcast? Well, I started it because I really knew from a young age that I was gonna go forward with communication, whether that was psychology, medicine, combination of both, or even um, now in education, it's it vital. And so I knew at a very young age I wanted to hone in on that. I think I knew because my father told me at about age eight or nine, which is my eldest son's age now, a very formative year or two there where um, in that range of age, you know, you you sort of listen to your parents in a way where they tell you something that kind of sticks. It may not come out right away, but for me, it did come out right around college time where my dad had told me when I was about eight or nine that I was uh, a person he thought had a gift of gab, and if you're listening, Dad, that's that's something that's resonated with me all these years later, forty-one years later. I'm I'm now thinking, yeah, you know, he's right. And <clears throat> I mean, I didn't focus on it for a while, but I did know that that was something that I could do. Um, it was something that I wanted to bring into my professorship. And it was something I wanted to bring into my practice, into my relationships, and now really into this podcast. So I do still adjunct. uh, I have adjunct positions that I still do um, in psychology. But I also really use this skill for my practice to help parents and children understand themselves. And now I'm really trying to do this for... A multitude of people through this podcast. So, what it, this comes down to is it's kind of practice. So, if you want to email me back and let me know how you feel about the things that I'm talking about, maybe you also have some topics that you'd like me to talk about. Maybe you have some questions. That's what this is all about. So, I don't have to do it from a formal position. You know, I'm not the sage on the stage. I'm really just more your partner and trying to tell you some things that I've learned, um, some things that I want you to kind of consider. But ultimately, just have a conversation via the free webs and all the things that we can kind of achieve in life today. It's really all about optimal living. But it really needs to, the record needs to be set straight. The 10,000-hour rule is, in fact, a myth. You could be an individual who, say, for example, you know has whatever hobby it may be. Let's just say you want to be a master magician. So you could practice it. And sure, that 10,000 hours is going to get you to be proficient, highly proficient even. But will you be a master and expert without the feedback? If you were just a magician on an island and you were performing to the seagulls, and the trees. Would you get the feedback? Would you know how to improve? So that's the big step. And you can't really reflect unless you improve. Or if you even digress, how could you reflect on that? How do, how would you know? So I guess what this all comes down to, the takeaway point is how do you gauge expertise? And do you just single-handedly announce that you're an expert at something? I think... I've found in today's world a lot of people do in fact say I've done this so many years therefore I must be an expert for example um, I hope you're not listening now but a little feedback I would give to a teacher who I was speaking to just yesterday an educator and I were having a meeting with a a couple other um, administration and and I believe another teacher and Somewhere in there, and this is usually done when somebody wants to exert that they have some kind of expertise or even power, is this individual just dropped that they had 23 years of experience out of nowhere, unsolicited. And I mean, I thought to myself, well, you could be doing the wrong thing for 23 years, or maybe (laughs) you're actually hurting people for 23 years, who knows? I mean, it doesn't matter the time so much. It matters what you're doing, whether you're improving, you're doing the right thing, and whether somebody's letting you know. And I can be a perfect testament to that, um, having observed maybe hundreds of teachers, educators over the course of my career. And I can tell you that some of the most energetic and effective ones are the eager and new the ones who are wanting to learn versus the ones who think they know it all. And I can tell you that I've gone to hundreds of concerts and shows and operas and maybe included in that also theater programs. And the folks who are honestly and truly humble, the ones that say, I don't know how this happened. I worked at it. I loved it. Um, I thank you for your feedback in in the... in the form of applause, and that is just the person who I believe uh, tends to really be an expert. The people who come out and say, I'm wonderful, yes, I know, are the ones that really aren't good performers, first. And then secondly, how can you even claim that expert status based on what? We all know that the individuals who claim that they're amazing at something are... Probably not. Um, We can kind of just go back to when we were in second grade. And so I want you to put your second grade mind on and think, who was that kid that just said, I'm going to finish this math exam in 10 seconds and I'm done and I've got it perfectly done. It was typically the person who was not the expert, probably got the lowest grade, just wanted to finish and didn't want to learn. So ultimately, the 10,000 rule, the takeaway points for this is that it's not about just the time. It's about the effort. It's about reflection. And it's about having somebody or something around you to give you feedback as to how you're doing. Give you a little gauge whether you're doing well at all or on track. It's about practice, too. So don't forget, the 10,000 hours does matter when it comes to logging hours, putting in the work. But the actual time varies, I believe. I think it's more of a range. I've seen people who before are quite geniuses, at, say, for example, learning the viola, and they only need, they need a lot less time. And I'm not going to put a number on it because I think that range has not been defined. But I can tell you that it's not just 10,000 hours. I can also say that some people take a lot longer. So do consider processing time. How long does it take for you to learn something? How long does it take for you to translate that learned process into a skill? And how long does it take you to effortlessly practice that skill until... It's just kind of second nature. Well, that also varies as well. So the takeaway is keep learning. Keep thinking that you don't have it all. You know, we'd like to think that we have some gifts and do hone in on those strengths and those gifts that you are naturally given. But do you know that it is more than just the time and it's all possible You just got to give it the effort, but do find a mentor if you don't have one and feel free to contact me. I've got stacks of research on this. I've actually have printed research from the past 10 or 13 years where I've just kind of wanted to collect um, a lot of the research and collate as to what makes sense, especially with some of the gifted populations and then a lot of people who are in the arts and maybe the creative fields, as well as writers, actors, all of the different sort of performers, and especially those of you who are high achieving and wanna put forth the time and the effort, just note that you really need to kind of step back and take a look at how you're gauging your expertise. And that's gonna be it for now for the Novel Brain with Dr. E. I hope you all have a very good day, and stay tuned for the next one. Be well, all.